Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Frank Caggiano goes through 2,000 years of the papacy. Well, actually, we don't have time to go through all 2,000 years, but the first five or 600 years or so. His Excellency starts with Peter, the first pope, and works his way all the way through Gregory the Great. And there are some very interesting histories and fascinating stories in that time. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM or at 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. If you are enjoying Let Me Be Frank, you can help us out by going to your favorite podcast platform and giving us a five-star rating. And of course, Let Me Be Frank, as always, is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Excellency. And let me tell you, yeah. are you, I'm cold. Yeah. I don't know about you. This weather has been very odd. Yes. Yep. And the rain makes it feel worse. Oh, God, at least today, thank God, the day we're, t- we're taping, it's not raining, but I'm still, it, it must be less than 50 degrees. I don't know, but my room is freezing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and, and, you know. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Off we go. I, I'm listen, still flustered. Listen, you're still flustered. Yeah. And we're doing little, since we're doing potpourri here, I, I was reading that the national, whatever it is, weather, whatever it is, says that this El Nino effect will be very severe and that there's a good likelihood that the Atlantic coast may see a blizzard similar to the one we had in 2015 and 16, right? Because of all the moisture. Oh, so, so anyway, I don't want to depress people listening. So forget I said that. But I mean, it's, it, it's going to be quite an interesting winter. Oh, I think. my gosh. Anyway, it is what it is. Okay. <laughs> So what are we talking about besides the weather? Yeah, yeah. It's good. Good question. You said potpourri. Yeah, well, yeah, well, actually, you know, there were two things I wanted to talk about. One we could do fairly fairly quickly, and the other has always been an interest of mine. But there's a lot of people, at least four or five people, have spoken to me about this question of change and doctrine and development and, you know, can things change? How do they change? How do they develop? Right? And I think it'd be worthwhile to spend just a few moments because I think people are, are, are worrying needlessly. Right? And therefore, and that's not good. Yeah. Right? That's not, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. So, so the authority on this in the history of the church is Vincent of Lerins, who lived in the fifth century a theologian who, as you know, at the time, there was great controversy. The church was just settling the Christological controversies, right, of who Jesus is, divine person mm-hmm. with human nature, divine. We've spoken about yes. that. Yes. Okay. And he has a definition of orthodoxy that's only a simple sentence that's worth thinking about. He says, and I quote, moreover, in the Catholic Church itself, all possible care must be taken that we hold that faith which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. Three conditions. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. Please, I think we need to remember everywhere does not mean just physical location. Hmm. It means everywhere. That is from the apostles to us. And the longer the time passes, the longer, the bigger that everywhere is. That's number one. Always, all right, is an interesting concept too, because it it means from the beginning, of course, 
And it is the clarification that has happened because of the controversies. Sometimes someone has to make a mistake to make the truth more obvious, right? Or to use a half-truth to elucidate the full truth. But it is always. So again, from the apostles everywhere. And by all, and by all it would mean not only the magisterium, which are the bishops or the teachers of the church, but also the clergy, the religious, and the lay faithful. Mm -hmm. And once again, um, that all in the history of the church has had periods where there had to be clarification because of the of those things being proposed that would eventually discerned to be not within the deposit of the faith. Right. So, so the line has always been straight, but there's always there's been bumps along the way because people would be veering in one direction and had to be brought back. So it's a very simple way of understanding. So then the question he says, if I may quote, he says, but someone will say perhaps, shall there then be no progress in Christ's church? And he responds, certainly all possible progress. Yet on the condition that it be real progress, not alteration of the faith, and then the next sentence is something I think we really need to think about. For progress requires that the subject be enlarged in itself. Alteration, that it be transformed into something else. Progress occurs. Right? Alteration does not. Mm. And we've spoken about this before, I think a few years ago, but now because of so many other things going on and all this stuff on social media and everything else that people, you know, there's not an opinion that, that's not expressed in some people or other right. that confuses people. Uh, he uses the image of the person. So you look at yourself. It's the same seat Steve Lee that was in the crib that is now sitting at your desk. Right. Same for myself. Right, there isn't an alteration in that you have not become something other than the human being who is Steve Lee. Otherwise, right, you would not be who you are. Mm -hmm. But you have developed consonant with who you are. Yes. Right. So it's almost like with the passage of time, it has become clearer, believe it or not, who Steve Lee is or who Frank Caggiano is. Simply because with the passage of time, more of who you are has become evident. Right. Yes. So, so he he goes he uses a phrase that says, "So it beho behooves Christian doctrine to follow the same laws of progress, so as to be consolidated by years, enlarged by time, refined by age, yet to continue uncorrupt and unalterated." complete and perfect in all its measures. So whether it is, for example, the church's practice to condone, to forbid usury, and now condoning usury, is not so much a change, right? It is, in fact, the development of what the deposit of faith was, within the, the understanding of the church's social teaching. So in the outward, yeah, there is, a, there is a quote unquote change, but in fact, it is the development of what was always there, that in time the church came to understand more deeply. So I think people are very, you know, the, the, again, everyone kind of gets all worked up for no reason about things. And in recent times, a lot of commentaries have said, well, will the sin and our synodality then change the faith? Well, in fact, it can't change the faith. Right. Right. Yes, but it can help elucidate the faith in a deeper way, to make it more, to make it for us who are Christians to live it more profoundly in a world that's different than the tenth century. Right? Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Yep. Yeah. So, so that is important. The, but what I really want to talk about today mm. is, you know, I, I like history. I always have liked history. I like astronomy. I like history. And I think a lot of people like history, right? Whether it's American history, uh, global history, world history, and the history of the church. And I think our next guest is going to give us, right, a yes. tremendous insight on the importance of knowing the history of the church. Yes, next correct? week. Yep. 
Yeah. You want to give a little preview or not? You want to keep people in suspense? Uh, keep them in suspense. Okay. <laughs> I agree. All right. But what I wanted to talk about today is the papacy itself and how the papacy has unfolded, right? In a sense, if we want to use development as Vincent of Lawrence, how it has developed over time, but the seeds of which were in St. Peter from the beginning, and it's a very interesting history, and it's a colorful history too, as you know. So, it, do you remember? Maybe you're too young to remember, but when the popes were were installed, they were coronated. No, no, this no, is very I, depressing. <laughs> I, think, I, th I think this taping is over now. I have to go sit so in the dark. So the, the word <laughs> the word coronation means crowned. They actually were Correct. crowned. Yeah, so the, the popes wore a tiara for almost a thousand years. And you see the tiara on the feast of St. Peter and Paul because the image of St. Peter's in the Basilica in Rome of St. Peter's is actually adorned with the tiara. Hmm. And it is three crowns. And I was doing some research. I mean, the, the, it, it looks heavy. But actually, the typical tiara is only about two pounds, so it is very light. Mm -hmm. The one that Napoleon had made for the Pope was 18 pounds. Oh, my gosh. And he purposely made it too small because the Pope, it wouldn't fit on his head because he was making a point. Uh -huh. right? Because part of the history of the papacy has been the Pope's relationships with secular authority right. Right? in a changing time when there was Christendom and then when it became a secular world. But in a sense, if you use the tiara to say, so what does that signify? Even that itself is fascinating because there are many different interpretations of what those three crowns mean, right? One on top of the other. As we're going to get to today in a bit, I mean, certainly the most common understanding of what those were are, it re re reflected the Pope's authority over the papal states when there were papal states, Right. his spiritual authority over the governments, the princes and kings of the world, and he was the vicar of Christ. Mm -hmm. Those three elements. In more recent times, and that elucidates what the Pope, what the role of the papacy is. Those are aspects of what the Pope is in our midst. Right? There are more modern interpretations that say he is the universal pastor, he has universal jurisdiction, and he has temporal power as well. Right, because he's the head of state. Yes. Now, a much smaller state. Yes. But universal power as the supreme right leader of the church. Yes. He's also the universal pastor, right? And therefore, nothing can be done without the Pope's approval. Then there are those who say it represents priest, prophet, and king, right? So it's the fullness of authority and the fullness of the ministry, which we all share in some way through baptism, laity priests in the ministerial priesthood, bishops, right, in the fullness of that office, and he would then be, in some sense, the fullest expression of all of that. And then there are those that say he is the one who represents the church militant, the church suffering, and the church triumphant, the three crowns. Hmm. And I think our, our listeners probably know the difference, but if I were to ask you, Steve, what's the church militant referred to? That's us today on earth still fighting for our salvation. Correct. Church suffering? They're the ones in purgatory. Waiting, please God, yes. to one day go to glory. Yes. And then the church triumphant are the angels and saints in heaven. Right. And he kind of is represented as the link of that church. He's sign of communion. Huh. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Now, these are all elements within, I'm going to call it the mystery, within the reality of the papacy that has evolved. But if you ask St. Peter that, uh, he wouldn't tell you these things. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> right? But in fact, they're all latent in that. So let's go through a little journey, shall we, about the papacy. Let's start with St. Peter, right? That's a good Who place is, to start with the papacy. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that Unless I am wrong, and I, I could defer to scripture scholars, I do not recall any explicit scriptural attestation that Peter went to Rome. Right? In fact, he did. 
and we know he did, right, from other sources, right, right, there's a strong tradition behind it, right, they are indirect references in scripture, particularly in Peter's own epistles, but we, do nowhere does it say he actually arrived in Rome, but we know he did, because he was martyred there, right, which is interesting, but what is clear in scripture, without a doubt, is the priority of Peter over the apostles, there is no doubt that he was the the head, the spokesman, he was the chief shepherd of the apostles themselves. All right. What are some of the scriptural references, right? Matthew 16, 17 to 19. You are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. You couldn't get clearer mm-hmm. from the mouth of the Lord, right? John 21, 15 to 17, which we've spoken about often, right? Because it's a beautiful meditation of what I'm going to call the forgiveness of Peter from his threefold betrayal. Yes. Simon Peter, feed my sheep. So it's to him to feed my sheep. And then in the Acts of the Apostles, for the first 12 chapters, the primacy of Peter is clear. Yes. Right? The deferral is clear. Even St. Paul, in his epistles, makes it very clear that Peter has the primacy. Even when in Galatians, Paul takes Peter to task. Yes. Right? But it's done in fraternal love. Yes in service of his ministry, not in opposition as if he was an equal, you know, uh, uh, rival authority. Right. Right. And that's something I think that we also need to reflect on too, even in the early church. Uh, This idea of the authenticity, right, and completeness of the faith and orthodoxy um, requires many participants in its guarantee Although there is the, the magisterium is the ultimate guarantee, but many voices along the way have helped to make sure that it remains pure and clear. Right? So Paul gives us the first example of a brother bishop mm-hmm. who helped the head of the bishops to make sure that the faith was correct, clear, orthodox, if I could use that word. Yes. Right? Yep. What's interesting about Peter is he is the first bishop of Rome but there is a very strong tradition that holds he was also the first bishop of Antioch before he went to Rome. Hmm. Right? Ignatius of Antioch, which we've spoken about, yes. in his letter to the Romans in 107 AD, refers to Peter as the first bishop of Antioch. Right? So in his journey, right, from what we consider the Holy Land to Rome and stop, he is considered to be this first bishop by Ignatius. Even Saint, of all people, Saint Theophilus, who is the sixth bishop of Antioch. That's why I love Catholic history. It's just so intriguing. Also refers to Antioch as a Petrine see. And then going along, the bishops of Antioch see themselves in some sense as the forebearers of Peter, right? But he goes to Rome because that is where his see, that is where his ministry is to begin right. in its earnest, right? As the bishop of the of of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unknown when Peter actually arrived in Rome. What year? Scholars think that Peter arrived in Rome around sixty A.D until his death. Some scholars argue that it was earlier than that, because if the Lord lived, as the tradition holds, to 33 years, so there would have been, from his death and resurrection to Peter coming to Rome, that would have been 27 years, right? So some scholars say it was much earlier than that. But regardless, we know that he did. Yes. And it's what's interesting is to, if I may self-correct of what I said about the scriptural attestation, there's an interesting about whether or not this scriptural attested, literal scriptural citation that Peter went to Rome. In the first letter, the first epistle written by Peter, in the fifth chapter, there's a very interesting reference, right? Peter says he's writing from Babylon. Now, you know the persecution of the Christians had already begun. 
And at that time, as you even see in the book of Revelation, the Christians began to refer to Rome as Babylon to avoid being caught by those who may read the writings. Yes. Right? And so if that is the case, then in fact, he attests himself to being in Rome. Right. Yes. Right? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. The general consensus is that Peter, from what we can piece together, died in 64 AD under Nero. Right? A Clement of Rome, his letter to the Corinthians, mentions Peter died in Rome. Ignatius of Antioch says that Peter died in Rome. St. Irenaeus right, also refers to Peter's death in Rome. Uh, Tertullian says in 225 that Peter not only died in Rome, but he was crucified, which is what the tradition holds now, that he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord and Savior was. And Eusebius, who is really the father, the, the earliest father of church history, says that Peter was martyred during Nero and he is the one who actually says it was at 64 AD, more or less. So in fact, that is where we have this. So the first Pope, right, who is the Bishop of Rome, has this journey and therefore lays the seeds of a ministry, which we call the Petrine ministry, which has now flowered I'm going to use the word developed the way I explained it at the beginning over the next 20 centuries. And the fact that it is unbroken, it's itself a remarkable fact. Yes. Right. Of divine protection. Yes. Right. Do you remember we had that uh, podcast? I don't know, maybe one of the early ones about Peter's tomb in the Vatican and how it was discovered. I don't remember how it was discovered. Well, the, the important point for our conversation here is that, in fact, it has been authenticated that that is Peter's grave. Yes. Sitting under the Basilica of, of St. Peter's in Rome. The, the confirmation homily that I often used last year, because I unveil a new one every year, <laughs> made reference to the fact that the stadium, the Vatican Stadium, was the place where Peter was martyred and thousands of Christians were martyred, starting with under Nero's persecution, which is geographically adjacent to where St. Peter's is now. Right. And um, in 2000 AD, right, Gaius, a priest of Rome, in his book that they have discovered, makes mention of the fact that there was a trofeo, that is a trophy that marked the place of Peter's burial. And the word literally means marker. Right? And for those who were attested to be dignitaries or people of great importance, they, their graves were marked with a trofeo or a trophy. Okay. And that also helped the earliest Christians to know where Peter was buried because the Christians did honor the tomb, the, the burial sites of the martyrs, right? Mm -hmm. We've talked about that too. So when Constantine gave peace to the church, which we'll talk about, which had profound Im implications for the papacy, he built St. Peter's Basilica. And the original basilica, right, and the present basilica is over the old basilica, or actually there was actually three. So, I mean, it's in, What's interesting is that when you look at the geography, of course, which is now altered over the centuries, in the original geography, if you had to pick a place to build a church, that would not have been the place to build a church. Because on one side, there was a hill. On the other side, there was a marsh. So you say to yourself, this is the place. You could figure somewhere else. It's nice, level, easy. But it was, despite all the difficulties, they built it there. Why? Because that was his burial yes, place. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? So in the excavations of, you know, that were, occurred during Second World War and afterwards, we've authenticated it. So it is for that reason that the church, the Basilica of St. Peter's, 
is the spiritual seat of the papacy, even though in the Middle Ages, its functional seat was at the Lateran Palace. Hmm. So the papacy really kind of, its spiritual home is there, it will always be there until the second coming of Christ. Right. So what, what, how has the, 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 the papacy evolved over time? That is, how has it developed so that it has universal pastor, universal jurisdiction, all the rest? How has that happened? So it has happened over the centuries. And there are some interesting developments along the way that kind of point to some of the markers that allowed that to happen. And there were two things in particular that kind of began that process. The first is the nomination of bishops. Who in the end would nominate or confirm or both the men who are the successors of the apostles? And you could well imagine there were lots of opinions on that, particularly when the church was established secular rulers who wanted to put their hands into that nomination process. And the second are what we call the lapsy controversy. And the lapsy controversy was an extremely important moment in the life of the church. So we have time to keep going before we break. Let's, uh, let's use that as a teaser. Okay. Um, <clears throat> because, yeah, we do need to take a break. So lapsy controversy was a pivotal moment in the history of the church and you're going to find out what that was on the other side of the break this is let me be frank in the veritas catholic network be right back if you're concerned about your end of life plans searching for a catholic cemetery or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 catholic cemeteries throughout fairfield county now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5, or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, you left us hanging. Hanging. <laughs> okay. The Lapsy controversy. Yeah, the Lapsy controversy. Okay, so uh, we, uh, we know, again, with the development of doctrine within the context of what I've described, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation evolved in the life of the church. Because, in fact, it was there at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He instituted it. Yes. Right. But we did not, in fact, come to realize the fullness of that without the passage of human experience that helped us to understand. Right. And it was rooted in the fact that, as you know, baptism forgives all sin, original sin and personal sin. And before there was the practice of individual confession and penance. What would happen to a Christian who was baptized and fell into what we now call mortal sin, grave serious sin? What would happen? Another way to put that is in the lapsy controversy, what would happen when a person lapsed in the faith and 
in the time of persecution gave way to doing whatever was necessary, even if it was minimal, mm -hmm. to make sure that they did not suffer the penalty of death. Right. Now, we've talked about that for the faithful. But what happens if a bishop lapsed? What would you do? He's still ordained. Yeah. What do you do? Right. So in the third century, papal authority began to grow because the popes began to offer solutions that initially were opposed, but then became the practice of the church. Right. So, for example, um, there were two moments in this century that were very definitive. The first is there were two bishops in Spain who had apostatized during the persecutions. Right. What do you do with them? Right. There was one school of thought that said they could go through penance, perhaps severe penance, and be readmitted into ministry, and others who said, out you go. Mm -hmm. right. Pope Stephen, who was the pope at the time, allowed them to remain after penance, rigorous penance. Right. Others, like uh, Cyprian of Carthage, refused to recognize them in their return. Mm -hmm. And other bishops of Spain refused to accept them either. Oh my God! Not all, but some. Because So you see how we've always kind of been in the ebb and flow. There's always been a lot of drama. There's always been controversy. Yes. I mean, it's just part of human nature. Yep. <laughs> but in fact, right, Stephen affirmed their legacy, their legitimacy, and he prevailed. Okay. Okay. And he set a standard that helped the church then elucidate, well, then if they are coming back and there is penance and they need to do penance, then how does the power of the keys, that is the forgiveness of sins, exercised in such a way so that they can also minister the sacraments and be in full communion again. So the church, because of the, of the sinfulness of some of its members, began to understand that the Lord had given us right that sacrament in the power of the keys. Yeah. Right? That yeah. began to grow. Right? The second piece is if you are... Uh, uh, forgive me for using this term, okay? A heretic that is lapsed. Yes. Let's say you're a lapsed priest or a lapsed bishop or, right. And you conferred baptism. Was it valid huh. or not? What would you think, Steve? I would think for baptism, yes, it would be valid since lay people can also... Ah, all right. So, oh, so now, okay. What you just said that lay people to uh, Pope Stephen and, and Cyprian, they would have had, they would have looked at you with nine faces <laughs> and said, what is this man is on? Whatever he's drinking, I want twice as much. There's no way they would. Uh -oh. right. But it was all there. But it took the passage of time to understand it. But to your point, Cyprian of Carthage said they needed to be rebaptized. The baptism was invalid. Huh, okay. Okay, Pope Stephen said, absolutely not. Wow. Because there was an understanding that it was an act of grace, that the, the purity, the sanctity, the holiness of the minister is not an impediment, or lack thereof, is not an impediment to the validity of the grace that comes in baptism. Okay? Yes. So they fought, but Stephen prevailed. And another pope after him, Dionysius, reaffirmed Stephen. So no, that's another example of how the universal jurisdiction, the universal pastorate of the Pope began to be ex exerted throughout the whole church when other bishops were not following, right? So it was like the blossoming, which is, which I think is tremendous. Yeah. Right? So there is fraternal correction. Let's do a sidebar. There is a fraternal correction that comes with the papacy. It has been there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So as the universal pastor, and one would say the pastor of all the bishops of the church, if a bishop is doing something which is harming the unity of the church, if a bishop is something that's teaching that is incorrect, if a, if a bishop is in his, in his lifestyle giving scandal to the faithful, mm -hmm. 
the Pope has the authority to correct him, just like Stephen corrected Cyprian, right? Because that's part of the ministry that has always since Peter, that has now clearly developed as one of his primary, one would say, uh, obligations, responsibilities. But that developed over time, right? Okay. So how does Constantine coming onto the picture change things? All right. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) A lot. So we know, uh, you know the story of Constantine, right? So Constantine ended the persecution of of the Christians because he had a conversion on the Milvian Bridge, right, in 312. He had this vision of a cross in the midst of the battle. And he took the symbol of the cross, the, the sign of the cross, as a symbol that his army would be victorious, mm-hmm. right? And it was, right? And therefore, he saw that as a sign that this is, that, that, the, that this cross is the means of victory, not just in temporal life, but unto eternal life, right? But now, Constantine himself... Right, did not become the sole emperor of the Rome because again there was so much intrigue there until 323, right? And he died in 337. So he signed the Edict of Milan. There's dispute whether it was 312 or 313, but it's irrelevant. Let's say it's 313, right? And he he took Christianity to become one would say an official religion of the church of the empire. Notice. An official religion, yes. not the official religion, an official religion right. of the church. So it was side by side with pagan worship, right? And it, what's interesting is the Pope at the time was Pope Sylvester, and Constantine supported him. So that's where now the discernment of the role of the Pope and secular society, or more importantly, secular government, all right, um, had to be clarified. And the step between doing that and having what you had in the persecutions was the relationship between the Pope and the Christian kings and emperors. So we now have a secular society with secular governments. But at the time of the church, from the, from the fourth century up to modernity, most of the rulers where there was Christianity were actually Christian kings and emperors. Mm-hmm. So there's an intermediate step. Now, when Constantine was baptized to become a Christian, then there's a Christian emperor, and then there is a pope. Now, a Christian emperor or a Christian king, there is that whole notion of the anointing of kings and the divine right of kings, that you become a king or an emperor because God has chosen you to do this. Mm-hmm. And therefore God, and that's why there's an anointing even to this day, right? So how does that fit into a Pope who's given spiritual jurisdiction, right? And spiritual rule over all God's people, right? including the emperor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you see how this, this can make some very interesting conversations, yes. right? The dynamics. Dynamics, right? What's interesting is, is that Constantine was very benevolent to the church while he lived. He married Fausta, right, and used her dowry to give to the church, to the Pope, right? And the dowry was the Lateran Palace. Uh-huh. So the, the Lateran Palace was given to the Pope as a gift by Constantine, and they actually became very close friends, right? particularly after his baptism. Mm-hmm. Now, scholars debate whether Pope Sylvester was the one who, who baptized Constantine, but, but the truth is, when you look at the Lateran Basilica, there are some frescoes that go back all the way to the 500s, and it is actually Pope Sylvester who is depicted, right, baptizing Constantine. Okay. So I think that's, to my book, that's authentic as an authentication as you need. Right. Um, but again... Constantine probably was not baptized until the end of his life because there wasn't this understanding that if you sinned after, there was a recourse. Ah, okay. And he probably knew himself fairly well. And he was a warrior. He was an emperor. So, I mean. Yes. But he did die a Christian. 
and he built many of the basilicas and churches, all right, of ancient antiquity of the church. So it raises the question, what's the relationship? And it took, a th I, was, I was going to say a thousand years, that may be an exaggeration, but it took many centuries to figure out what that was. But papal influence over the whole church was clearly manifested in his universal jurisdiction, his universal pastorate in the Christological councils. Because the Pope was invited to attend the ecumenical councils and he did not attend them. Remember, they were, they were held in the East. He was in Rome, mm -hmm. in the West. Yes. He sent papal legates his official representatives. And therefore, in some sense, the legates were the precedents of the council. But what became very clear is absent the presence of the papal legates, the council had no authority. That is, the Pope would not recognize its works. And if the Pope did not recognize its works, even if the bishops voted, they did not have binding authority. Mm. Okay. So you see the beginning that even though the successor of the apostles can meet to discuss the homoousios and Nicaea and Ephesus and all, if the papal legates weren't there, it was it, it, it was not binding. Hmm. Um, so there is called the robber council. Do you know this? I don't know this. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in Ephesus, the council of Ephesus was four thirty one, right? And the interesting thing, although there is another caveat to this, which is fascinating. You know, there are patriarchs besides, right? So there's Alexandria and Constantinople and all the rest, yes. Antioch. And, and Rome is a patriarchate. So the Pope is the patriarch of Rome. Even though the councils, the early councils could not, all right, function without the papal legates, it was also true that the patriarchs or their legates had to also be present. Mm. Them. So, for example, at Ephesus, right, and they were present, right, all four of them, right, Rome, Constantinople, it was actually four, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. All right, so the robber council was at 449. It's called Ephesus II. Right? It was called by Pope Leo himself at the wish of the emperor to deal with monophysitism, which is that Jesus had only one will. But it was later declared invalid. Why? Because the papal legates were not made the president of the council. Uh -huh. That is why you had the Council of Chalcedon two years later, called by Leo himself. But this time, the Pope's role was clear. His, his legates were in charge, and that which it taught has become now part of the key orthodoxy of, of Christological faith. Fascinating, no? Yeah. And there was an evolution of the intuition of faith that if Peter does not speak, then the church does not speak, even if all the bishops speak. Mm. Mm -hmm. You are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter would not have known what Leo the Great knew. Yes. Right? Yep. But it was all there. Yeah. Now, a, a quick test of history. How many popes are officially called great? Oh, it must be only a handful. Correct. Right. In this era of the church's life, for sure, there are only two. Okay. Pope Leo and Pope Gregory. Right. So Pope Leo is called Pope Leo the Great. Apart from all of his... Now, another interesting thing, too, that's fascinating. We see the papacy in the contemporary church as um, one of its principal functions is to teach the faith. That has always been the case. But the qualifications to be Pope, in recent times, like you look at uh, Pope St. John Paul II, yes. a, a, a towering theologian, Yes. Towering. Yes. Right? In the early church, it was not always the case. Because to teach the faith, 
you don't necessarily have to be a theologian, right? To know it and to teach it, mm -hmm. right? A theologian develops it further, minds it more profoundly. Yes. Right? So not all of the popes who were, were chosen because of their theological prowess, they were chosen because of their pastoral skill and ability, Okay. right? Because of their ability to minister the church. There are many different gifts, sets of gifts and talents. But the two who are called great in this era are great in part because they were also theologians in their own right. So Pope Leo the Great, he was the one whose tome actually brought peace to the Christological controversies at Chalcedon. Pope Leo was the one who brought the, what we now call the orthodox language of faith. So he was a brilliant mind, but he was also a brilliant negotiator. And I say that because when Attila the Hun was at the gates of Rome, yes. it was Leo who went out to negotiate to save the city from being sacked, which literally means burnt to the ground. Right. Right? The Vandals, three years later, showed up at the same doorstep in 455. And he encountered their king, this is Leo, saved the city from being pillaged. In fact, they sacked Rome for one night, and then they voluntarily withdrew. So it's almost like the Vandals were less gentlemanly Right then, and the the hunts. <laughs> but then but they didn't burn it to the ground and they left mm -hmm. right so what does that represent what does that show it, again in the evolution in this in this development that the pope as the bishop of rome is the bishop of rome yes. <laughs> like one of his duties is to care for the people of the diocese of rome right yeah Right? And what's interesting is Pope Francis in, in you know, like what, 16 centuries later, has taken that very much to heart, meeting with the clergy of Rome, visiting the church, just as John Paul did, but in a very special way, reorganizing the, 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 uh, the, uh, the diocese of Rome and being very much involved because he sees himself as the pastor yes. of that. Now, the other one, the other great He, his papacy was from 590 to 604. And yeah, that doesn't help he's me. a doctor of the church. <laughs> and he's St. Gregory the Great. Oh, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> Pope, right? Yes, Pope St. Gregory the Great. Right. And what's interesting here is that he did the same thing. First of all, Gregory was a tremendous theologian. He's a doctor of the church, wrote in, in, in very important uh, theological texts. He preached all his, his homilies. Um, what's interesting is he's the custodian of the faith. And the idea that the Pope corrected the errors of faith was only beginning to develop. Hmm. Right? From the councils. Gregory took it the next step. Right? It wasn't until he himself was a great theologian, those who came after him were not equally competent. It wasn't until really uh, Leo XIII that we began to have towering theologians again who were chosen among the bishops mm. to become the Pope. Mm. But, but what Gregory did right, is he expanded the, the authority of the papacy beyond what was still in existence to areas that were not even Christian. Now you may say, how did he do that? Well, St. Augustine of Canterbury was sent with 30 companions to England, to the Anglo-Saxons, to introduce Christianity to the British Isles, right? right? At least to the English. He was sent specifically by Pope Gregory. Okay. In the next century, the English missionaries would then go to unevangelized parts of Europe, like St. Boniface went to Germany and St. Willebrand to Luxembourg and to Holland and to, and to the Netherlands. So you begin to see that the Pope was supportive of the missionaries and he saw his, his care and the exercise of his pastoral care to really 
go beyond Christianity or Christendom to go to the whole world. Yes, make disciples and you of see all that nations. About. Exactly, and actively do it. So, in some sense, I think, like like we're talking about with the development, it, it took almost into the sixth century for us for the for the popes to realize what we just take for granted. Yeah, that the pope is the universal pastor of the whole world, all believers in faith. It took up to the sixth century for that for that to become kind of the parlance, right, of what we have. Um, so there's one other thing we have time for because you just gave me the signal for those who know we're on radio <laughs> I was trying to be subtle about it <laughs> no there's no such thing being subtle let's end with this because I thought it was very fascinating have you ever heard of the donation of Constantine no I have not alright so the donation of, of Constantine is a document that appeared all right, in about seven, the middle of the 700s in France and it was thought to be authentic. It wasn't until the 15th century that it was discredited as being inauthentic. And what it said was that the Emperor Constantine left to the Pope what Constantine left behind in Rome when he relocated the capital of the empire to Byzantium, right, in the east. Okay. And what's interesting, it was considered authentic throughout all the Middle Ages. But the popes themselves did not put much emphasis on it, right? Because papal authority is not derived by an emperor. Right. It comes from Christ. Yes. Right? And it was considered a fraud even as early as the 11th century. So why, why am I raising this? For a number of reasons. Interesting historically, yes. in this patrimony that was given, he was also supposedly given the diadem crown, the mitre, the veil, the purple cloak, the scarlet tunic, everything that went with the emperor. And you see the beginnings of the vesture that bishops and cardinals wear huh. came from that, right? Even though that would have evolved either way. I mean, that those are answers that's not really significant yes. to the faith, right? But it also begins to see the seeds of how the Pope would eventually have some temporal authority. Because over time, right, the accumulation of what, what became the papal states gave the Pope temporal authority. See, yes. he was a temporal leader as well as a spiritual leader, yes. which had, of course, its ups and downs. It had its difficulties through the centuries. And to this day, he's a temporal leader. Now, people may say, well, why does the Vatican have to be its own country? Mm -hmm even though it's, I think, the smallest country on earth or one of the smallest countries on earth. And the reason is clear is because that gives the, the Pope, who is the sovereign leader of the church, the independence from secular rulers. So he's not subject to anyone. Right. So in a sense, the Pope in the history of the papacy had developed into a, sec, into a temporal leader Precisely because that is the independence necessary to be the spiritual leader of the universal church. Without that, there would be no interference of governments in the in the role of. Could you imagine if the pope had had to be a citizen of another country? Yep. Right. Yep. But again, did Saint Peter know all this? No, no. of course not. But <laughs> but but did the Lord? Yes, of course he yeah. did. And as it developed over time, so I just think this is just one vignette of just fascinating. It's, it's fascinating. Stuff. It is so interesting. Yeah. And one other thing I have to tell you yes. is just quick, a quick factoid. In the ninth and tenth centuries, ninth and tenth century, there were forty-four popes. Hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. If you do the math. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. The average reign was only five years. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have to talk about why that was. Right. Uh, in our next point. episode. Yes. Gosh, there's so much to the church besides doctrine and teaching. I mean, the history is just incredible. Uh, if there's a moral to our story here today, it's this. I think for those who are listening, whether it's the history of the papacy, the history of the church, the history of the missions, the history of the religious congregate, whatever, um, I think it is to everybody's advantage – 
to find the time to acquaint yourself with the history of the church. Yes. Because a lot of the fears people have, a lot of the questions they have, have already been raised in the history of the church and answered. It's almost like you're looking for an answer that's staring you in the face. Yes. Yep. And just as I've tried in my own, you know, limited way, even with the history of the papacy, how the papacy has quote unquote developed is actually a quote unquote unfolding of what it is and intended by the Lord through the ups and downs and the end and and the, the crosswinds of history. Yeah. But it has always been that from the beginning. Now understood as St. Vincent of Lerner say more authentically, more more clearly, more fully, but it's always the same from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and we'll be able to, we will be able to dive even more deeply next week, as we said with our guest. Oh, because uh, I am uh, I am a novice. We're getting a, 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 an ultimate expert yeah. to come and talk to us about the history. So I'm going to be learning as much as our listeners next week when we have our guests come. Awesome, awesome. In the meantime, we're gonna, we're gonna take a break and we'll come back with a listener question uh, today. And so you're listening to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency, here is this week's listener question. It says, why do clergy wear black? What does the white collar represent? And can you wear a t-shirt and jeans if you wanted? When you go on a long plane trip, so this part, I guess, is particularly to you, Excellency. When you go on a long plane trip, do you dress casually or do you wear your clerical clothing? Okay. So let's do the second part first. When I travel, I'm always in my clerics. The only accommodation I make is I unbutton my shirt, right? Because I've gained weight, which I'm desperately trying to lose. And the shirts are very uncomfortable. The the collar is very uncomfortable sitting there for for like three or four or five hours. Other than that, I'm always in clerics. Yeah, always. And I see no reason not to be because I am who I am. Yes. So, right. Now, having said that, it's interesting. I did research on this question and there are two explanations. The first is a practical one, is that in the Middle Ages, black dye was the cheapest of all dyes to buy. So it allowed clerics to be dressed in the least expensive way. But having said that, that's practical, there's spiritual, right? So it is an embrace of poverty. It's an embrace of dying to oneself, right? That there is no color in what except black. The interesting thing is black is the absence of all color. White is the fullness of all color. So it is the absence of color. So there is this dying to self, this this call to transparency, this call to poverty that also associated with the color black. But so it had a both a practical and spiritual mm. origin. Okay. Is that interesting? Yeah, very much. Mm-hmm. And and the white collar? And I must confess, I was I was not able to find any historical explanation that I'm aware of of why the white collar, but my guess would be is that um, if white is the fullness of color and we wear it around our necks, then who are we to be transparent of except Christ? So in a sense, when you look at a priest like you see me now, you're drawn to the white, Mm -hmm. not to the black. Mm -hmm. But that's because it could very well be, I would think one of the spiritual reasons would be, this is the symbol of Christ in the priest. (laughs) Wow, okay. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Awesome. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. 
Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, thank you. Thank you. Before we go, would you please Mm -hmm. give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May the Lord bless, bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you and grant you joy and peace. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. So I'll see you next week with our guest. Thanks, Esther. All the best, Steve.